desperately wanted one famous person to become the face of an illness that affects tens of thousands of people and their families. It's not sexy and it's often hidden, but four in five people in this country have a link to it and the numbers are growing. Dementia. I just feel like it's time. It's time for us to be brave. It's time for us to have this conversation. It's time to bring dementia out from the shadows and shine a light on it and show people the joy that can still be lived. Lisa Burns is the head of marketing for Dementia NZ. She's wearing a T-shirt with the words, Still Me. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly, and today she tells the detail her own experiences of dementia in the family and her battle to get the disease into the spotlight. The opportunity for this role came up because I was in the corporate world before I, I took this role. I'd never worked in, a, in an NGO before. And when I found out that the role I was applying for was dementia, it immediately felt like this is where I was supposed to be because it was hugely personal for me. And really strangely, I thought, this has to be the easiest sell in the world, like in terms of being able to go out and get support for this disease. I totally underestimated how hard it was going to be. There are some incredible Kiwis in this country who have a dementia diagnosis. I wish we could get one of them to come forward and do what Sir John Kerwin has done. But yeah, I thought, gosh, how hard can it be to get a you know, celebrity or an ambassador to, to, to speak yeah. up for this disease? And uh, when I spoke to our PR manager, what I'd found was um, she had been having conversations with people, lots of people who all had a connection to dementia, but nobody was ready to come forward and own it. It was really shocking for me because I thought, why aren't people prepared to come out of the shadows? And part of it is because they're trying to protect the legacy of that person. A really well-known example would be Alison Holst. Um, So if you think about how her family protected her when when the diagnosis came out, she's a household name. Mm. I grew up on Alison Holst, Mm. but the family wanted to protect her dignity. Right now, support is reaching just 1 in 10 people with dementia in Auckland, and it's falling short in other parts of the country. Lisa reckons a famous front person would make a big difference. But so far, no one's willing to step up. And here's why. We need to address stigma in this country. It's a really big problem. What, what do you mean by that? People are scared of dementia. They are terrified and the reason they're terrified is because they don't understand it. And everyone deserves the opportunity to live life with dignity and joy. And um, the stories we hear of some of the stigma and experiences of, of people out in the community is it saddens us, to be honest, because they have a neurological disease, they have a terminal illness and they deserve to be treated the same way as everybody else and sadly what happens is that they isolate and people distance themselves children stay away um, friends distance themselves because they're, they're afraid, they're, they don't know how to handle it and then there's the fear that they might get it too and they don't want to confront that so we've got a huge job to do in terms of education to help people understand that um, even though there is no cure there is so much treatment available. Lisa's taking me into the boardroom of her Auckland office where impressively one wall is covered with columns of documents and post-it notes. The first column has one piece of paper on it with the words brain health. 
So this is a combination of uh, the work of the entire Auckland team and what we've been doing is essentially working through uh, the customer journey and the experience of people with dementia and their carers and families. Uh, and, and essentially the brain health piece is, is the piece right at the start, which is all about the education that we need to do in communities around brain health and also uh, preventing dementia. So what this kind of demonstrates is that um, because dementia is one of the longest terminal illnesses, averaging 8 to 10 years, it is uh, quite a long process uh, and it starts really navigating someone to the diagnosis and navigating them from the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. We aren't involved in the diagnosis process, that's usually done by GPs or neurologists or specialists, um, geriatricians. Uh, what this does is this is about helping our teams, our clinical teams, understand the types of things that are asked in those questions. Yeah, it's it's quite a um, complex process to get a diagnosis because there's no single scan or blood test that can give you an immediate answer. Unfortunately, it's almost like taking a school exam. Is it? You know, you go through a cognitive test and you get a result out of that and that helps to give us an understanding of where people are at with their cognition. And that's kind of the most advanced thing that people would go through that would um, lead to a diagnosis? So there's a variety of things. Uh, Sometimes brain scans are needed, so an MRI is needed, or a CT scan. There are a range of of different cognition tests that specialists do. And then once uh, a diagnosis is is determined, then that's when we receive the referral to support them living in the community at home. You'll see here there's a range of different things we do. So um, cognitive stimulation therapy, which can be really impactful for the person with dementia, Dance groups, art therapy groups, walking groups, singing groups. We have men's gym group, um, and we have an amazing group of men who are under 65 called Positive Reaction. So they have younger onset dementia, which is something that a lot of people don't understand. Uh, and so they have their own their own group. So this is where they find friendship and support and understanding. And it's it's a way to preserve old skills rather than requiring new ones and it's a safe place. It doesn't matter if you know it doesn't matter if they fail, it doesn't matter if they, they give something a try and it doesn't work. Uh, it's just a, a place for them to to go and participate and, and keep living well rather than you know staying at home and isolating themselves. Normal. That's Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake playing in a clip that's gone viral. It's difficult to watch because it shows a very frail former Spanish ballerina, Marta Cinta González Saldana, who had advanced Alzheimer's before she died last year. In this clip, she's remembering how she danced it doing the exact movements that she did years ago when she was a ballerina. The brain is an incredible thing. And and even at that advanced stage where people lose the ability to speak um, and communicate, it's profound that, that something like that could be stored and remembered so easily. We can bring joy, we can help people through this. So the messages, the dance and music classes, the support groups are there. There's just not enough of them for the growing number of people who need it. 
Lisa says there's a tipping point with dementia, the traumatic moment when that person has to go into care. But the trauma starts well before that, sometimes years before, when a person gets their first diagnosis. They are effectively told, you have dementia, go home, get your affairs in order. Do I need to come back? No, I don't need to see you again. Go home and get your affairs in order. Yeah, you know, if it was um, a serious heart condition or a cancer diagnosis, there's treatment plans, there's support offered, there's a whole range of things. And families don't get the opportunity to, first of all, come to terms with the diagnosis, understand what it means. They think that they just have to accept it and get on with it. Um, The recent... Um, research that came out of the Alzheimer's Disease International largest survey of 70,000 people on attitudes to dementia indicated that uh, a huge number of health practitioners still believe that dementia is just a normal part of ageing. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen and there's a lot of um, opportunities for us to do it better. So can you tell me a little bit more about the situation with your grandmother and what sort of support she got and how you dealt with it at the time? So I was the eldest grandchild. I adored her. She was very, very special to me. And so it was devastating when she got the diagnosis. And in the early stages, she certainly knew that something was wrong. She she would often say, I've already told you that, haven't I? And so watching someone who had always been a certain way, dress a certain way, be a certain way, have all of those parts of her personality change, both um, in the way that she came across, the way she spoke, and then even the way she looked. So as the brain starts to become more and more affected by the disease, a lot of physical changes take place too, and that's really hard to watch and you know in terms of our organization supporting my granddad um, people would take my grandmother for a walk you know they would do things to make sure that my granddad had support Mm -hmm. um, that he could ask questions and the one thing that he said was that we were always there if he ever needed someone to talk to or, you know, he needed guidance, uh, we were there for him. And it got to the, the kind of what we call the tipping point where it just became too difficult and he was unable to care for her at home any longer. There were a couple of times where, you know, she got out of the house and, and went missing and so when it gets to a point of, of a safety concern, it was he made the difficult decision to transfer her to uh, a, a dementia care unit where she remained until she passed. And uh, I was with her the night that, um, that she, she passed away. So that was a really special moment for me personally. And all these years later, I uh, kind of feel like I'm in the right place. If you'd known then what you know now... How would you have handled things differently with your grandmother? I would have spent significantly more time with her. Was it like you distanced yourself because you didn't know how to handle it? Some of it was. Um, Some of it was because when she really started to deteriorate, I, I did find that really hard to manage. We didn't understand nine years ago or longer because that's when she got the diagnosis there wasn't the resources available there wasn't the tools and the way to explain it to people in terms of what was happening and I remember there sort of almost being confusion about she had Alzheimer's but was Alzheimer's dementia and 
like trying to get your head around that and and it's one of the most common questions we get asked is really? what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia and getting people to understand that Alzheimer's is just the most common form of dementia dementia's the umbrella and that's why I want to help educate people to see the person not the dementia if, if I could wave a magic wand and give people with a diagnosis one thing, it would be to support them for the first 12 months after diagnosis um, with post-diagnosis care. Uh, it works in Scotland. Um, there's so much evidence and research um, around what Scotland has done, and we know it works. So Scotland is leading the way. Here's Henry Simmons from Alzheimer's Scotland telling TVNZ's Breakfast how it works. What was incredibly important was the way that we transformed how we thought about supporting people. So it was not about just giving someone a diagnosis and some medication and then very little support. It gave people a real strong opportunity to work closely with what we call a link worker, who helps that individual, that person, really come to terms with the illness, to develop their natural community supports and connections, can then support people to really plan their future, plan their future decision-making, take control, and really build within the support strategies a very person-centred method of ensuring that person's got choice, power and control, and allowing individuals to really maintain the highest possible quality of life. Their government made a commitment to dementia in 2007, um, so we're on the back foot. You know, we are t 10 years behind countries plus in terms of the way that they handle things. And in 2007, their government made a commitment to support people with dementia 12 months post-diagnosis. It is the one thing that makes a difference. If people can understand the diagnosis, they can get the right support, particularly for the carer. The person can get engaged with activities to keep them social and connected it can make a difference. It can be the difference between one to three years keeping them out of, of an advanced you know, dementia care unit out of crisis. There's tangible, so many tangible benefits to setting people up right once the diagnosis occurs. So you know what to do, it seems to me. Is it happening? Is it slowly happening? Is it quickly happening? <laughs> so um, in May of this year, the Dementia Action Plan uh, was launched. Uh, or submitted to, to government, uh, and that was a collaboration between uh, the three main dementia organisations in, in the country, so um, Alzheimer's New Zealand, Dementia New Zealand, and um, the Dementia Foundation. And that really laid out the plan uh, in terms of what we need to do, right through from uh, dementia prevention and brain health through to post-diagnosis, you know, right through to, you know, the end of life stage and what that looks like in terms of um, the workforce and that kind of stuff. So if there's 70,000 people currently living in, in New Zealand with dementia and that number is going to triple, and we've known for more than a decade that this was going to be a silent epidemic, it's, you know, someone in the world develops dementia every three seconds. Uh, the World Health Organisation has said it is going to be one of our biggest health and social crises of our time before COVID. It is important. They have been encouraging countries to get their plans together to address this. The World Health Organisation recognises that dementia is a global public health challenge. Worldwide, more than 47 million people live with the condition, with nearly 60% living in low- and middle-income countries. This figure is expected to almost triple by 2050. 
Country leaders can make a big difference too. By adapting health and social systems at a national level, they can improve surveillance in order to monitor how many people are affected. Invest in research to help find a cure and improve care. Put safeguards in place to provide protection from physical and mental abuse and support caregivers so that they can continue to lead a quality life of their own. Dementia has been known about since 1906. 100 years later, it was predicted to be an epidemic by 2050 with 118,000 sufferers in New Zealand. Two years later, that estimate climbed by 30,000. And the predictions keep blowing out with the latest 170,000 in 30 years. We're not going to have enough beds, dementia beds, so we have to come up with another plan to help people remain at home for longer, as long as possible. So I think one of the things that COVID did was it really actually highlighted the impact um, on, on people with dementia. So we had a number of, of carers in particular whose person was in a you know, dementia care unit who were locked out for you know quite a long period of time, not able to see their person, uh, and the result of that was that they deteriorated significantly. Um, it meant that all of their usual groups and respite and, and all of their normal activities that a person with dementia did, they weren't able to do, and so they were more isolated and they were affected by COVID. So in a way it was good because it helped highlight the things that we need to do for people with dementia, uh, and it is mentioned um, in the new government health policy as a you know an area of, of need, Okay, and so we are hopeful, really hopeful, that we can continue to work with government on delivering programmes and, and the action plan so that we can give better support to people with dementia. Why isn't it getting the same kind of attention that other diseases get? It's the question that keeps me awake at night. Is it because it's a disease of mostly the elderly? <sighs> Potentially. Potentially, there are some attitudes out there which you know are unfortunate. It's kind of like the equivalent of the monster under the bed. Nobody wants to to lift the lid and have a look. We know that four out of five people have a connection to dementia in some way. It touches almost everyone. Mm. For every one diagnosis, it can affect up to four children. The tough thing for us is if everyone knows about it, if everyone knows how tough it is, why is it so hard? to get people to talk about it? Why is it so hard to change attitudes towards it? We're in the same place that mental health was 15 years ago. Everybody, really? everybody knew about depression and anxiety. Everybody knew that it was, you know, it was out there, it was a thing. But there was so much stigma attached to it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And then, remarkably, Sir John Kerwin came out and he stepped into that space and he was brave. But there's a huge amount of shame that comes with this. And... You know, that's part of why this came about. You know, nobody wants to wear a T-shirt that says dementia. Mm, that's right. Still um, me is a, is a much better slogan. It is, but it's also about recognising it's not just the person with the disease. It's the person who has stepped up into the caring role because that person has lost the identity of wife, mother, sister, and they've been labelled carer, and that becomes their identity for as long as, as the disease progresses. And so this is about honouring both the carer 
and the person with the diagnosis because that partnership is absolutely critical. And if you can support those two people through the journey, then you give them half a chance to find the joy and the dignity in this condition because there are really special moments that happen. Like I, I have memories when my nana was in advanced care and she could no longer speak. But just for that briefest second... You saw it in her eyes. You saw the connection. It just, it happened and it was fleeting. But you can't, those memories will never go. So you, you honour and you celebrate those little moments when they happen because they're so precious. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Lisa Burns. Kakite anō. 